That was precious. I heard you guys singing over there. Beautiful, beautiful. Hey, Children's Church. <laughs> I remembered. Yes. Yes, I feel accomplished now. Well, I remembered Children's Church and didn't forget, so we can go home. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, if you've got your Bible and you want to turn there. Before, before we get into that, um, I want to do a brief moment of recap, um, purposeful redundancy or intentional repetition, um, but, and then I want to make a confession, but and, then I want to make a confession. A good confession, not like I've been in some terrible tragedy or anything like that. Um, so we started two weeks ago what we're calling the Emmaus journey. I said it wasn't a standalone message or it wasn't a series, number one, because it was going to be um, consecutive messages, but I said it wasn't a series because I didn't really know the full direction that God was going to take us in. And I believe that I figured that out, um, the generalized direction that this is going to go. However, well, I'll save that for the confession. <laughs> um, so on the first week, we read in Luke 24 about the road to Emmaus. And I asked you guys a question at the beginning of that message, and the question was, was the road to Emmaus a success or was it a failure? And I didn't give you an answer the first week. We looked at their, the road and they were having a conversation. We acknowledged the fact that they were both in doubt and in unbelief by various things that they said and things that they pointed out. And then Jesus comes up, and they don't realize it's Jesus, and he asks them what they're talking about, and they're like, are you the only person anywhere around here that has no idea what's going on? Essentially, that's in layman's terms not realizing that they were talking about Jesus to Jesus. Funny little joke I have with Asher. Um, but then Jesus says, foolish ones and slow to believe, did you not know that all these things had to happen? And so then he starts at Moses and the law and he goes through the entire Old Testament, the scripture that was available to them, and shows them everything points to Jesus. And so following that vein, that first week of our Emmaus journey, we looked at every single book in the Bible and we showed how it pointed to Jesus. We didn't show an all-inclusive list. We just showed a couple things from each book of the Bible, how it pointed to Jesus, and we walked through the entire Bible like that. And then we showed how it was the Spirit of God in us that could give us the revelation of Jesus in the Scripture, that we, in our natural mind, the natural man cannot perceive the things of the Spirit because they're foolishness to Him. We realized in that first message that it has to be the work of God. And we, uh, we even went back into our John 3.16 series and said, even Jesus, when Nicodemus came to Him, said, unless someone is born again, they can't see the things of the kingdom of God. So we realized it's the Spirit showing us the revelation of Jesus in the Scripture. And so the second week, we came back and I answered the question. Now the whole purpose of the question being asked was the Emmaus a success or a failure was so that you would begin to seek God and the Holy Spirit to illuminate questions that you might have to reveal the reality of the Scriptures, not just the surface value, but beginning to seek God to reveal the reality of the Scriptures to you. And the answer was the Emmaus or the road to Emmaus was a success, it was a failure, it was both and it was neither. And then I chuckled and I said, the reason that I asked that question is so that the first question I put forth had no wrong answer. The only wrong answer was if you didn't give an answer at all. 
So as long as you sought God and you got one of those four answers and you had it correctly. And we did a little bit of covering and we followed the story of Saul and his natural mistakes and how he thought from a natural perspective the things that he were doing was doing made sense. But really and truthfully, he wasn't obeying God. Even the exhortation that faith gave during worship, it's about obedience, obeying God. To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul was doing what naturally seemed right but it was disobedience to God and therefore God's presence was no longer with him. Because remember we made this observation. If God is not recognized as Lord, then His manifested presence will not be there. He must be recognized as Lord for His manifested presence to abide on a people or on a congregation. So therefore in this place we made a commitment that we are going to acknowledge and recognize Him as Lord. We are going to obey and submit and follow His leading and His will and His direction. So we continued in that vein and we looked at why it was a success and I, we discovered that it was a success because the moment that Jesus left them, they got up and they went back to Jerusalem. They met up with the other apostles and they were in the room. Jesus appeared to them and told them, tarry here until the promise of my Father. And I'm convinced and I believe that Scripture indicates that they were part of that 120 that received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Now, and then, of course, you can deduce it was both because it was a success and a failure, as we just pointed out. It was neither because, as far as we know, Cleopas and the other disciple didn't have any standard um, prerequisites for what deemed their journey a success or a failure. So it was open to any of those four answers. Now, we looked at Christ as the rock upon which the church will be built. And I thought, and this is where I have my discerning ear that God was beginning to show me the direction that this Emmaus journey was going is Christ is the rock or the foundation of the church is built upon that rock. Now I had planned a message, I had prayed, I had read, I had studied, I had even printed out the outline of the message and even went and wrote some handwritten notes on it and had it all prepped and ready and beautiful to go on Wednesday. Because I believe that God was going to begin to show us that Christ is unified with the body yet distinct. That He's not separate. He's unified with the body yet He is distinct. For example, He's the husband, we are the bride. He's the vine, we are the branches. He's the foundation, we're the building. He's the architect, we're the building. So on and so forth. He's the head, we're the body. And I believe that we were going to begin to pursue each one of those and discern what Christ's relationship or supply to the body is in each one of those relationships. And I believe that's the direction that we're going to go. However, Thursday night I was driving in my car and a song came on the radio or on my, across my YouTube feed. And the song was, You can have the world, just give me Jesus. You can have this whole world, just give me Jesus. And I began to have... Water forms in my eyes, tears form in my eyes, just at how beautiful and simple that song is. You can have everything, just give me Jesus. And I begin to feel the Spirit kind of moving and weighing on me that even though that might be the direction we're going, we needed to take a pause, we needed to take a break. Because we're not going to be able to follow the leading of the Spirit until we're willing to let go of everything that might hinder us in following Him. So today, we're going to begin and take a sidestep. It's a part of our journey, but it's a sidestep, pause, water break, if you will, so that we can press forward to the fullness of this journey. Does that make sense? So I'm not sure if this message is going to be 30 minutes, 10 minutes, 40 minutes, and I, it doesn't matter. What this message is going to be is going to be an encouragement. Let's let go of everything 
that's preventing us from going the full distance with Jesus. So Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 7. Paul has just finished listing out this all these things that make him qualified as a teacher, as fulfilling the law, all of this entire list. But he begins in verse 7 and he says, But whatsoever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. King James says, I count them as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul looks at everything that he has, his pedigree, his birthright, his training, his teaching, all of the things, whatever things I counted as gain. See, we have this tendency, and when we come to Jesus, we're willing to give up everything that sucks. We're willing to give up everything that's bad. Like, oh yeah, you can have my sin. Hey, Jesus, you can have my debt. If I've got a criminal record, Jesus, you can have that. If I've got struggles and bad relationships, Jesus, you can have that. I'm a new man. I'm new in Christ. And we're so willing and so ready to give up all the bad stuff. I got sickness, Jesus, you're a healer, you can have that. I got financial problems, Jesus, you're my provision, you can have that. And we're so willing to get rid of all the bad stuff. But how many times have we actually sat back and said, and looked at the things that we count as gain? Paul says, whatsoever things were gain to me, I counted as law. Whatsoever things were good, the things that I deemed as valuable and precious to me. When's the last time we did an inventory of those things and said, what would I really give up? For the sake of Christ. Because here's the thing, if when it comes to a material possession, whatever possession you cannot give up actually possesses you. Yes. So, the things that are good, my career, how far I've advanced in my job. If Jesus asked me to walk away from that and pursue a full-time life of ministry, would I do it? My relationship outside of the sanctity of marriage, if my relationship is one that is not pleasing and honoring to God and He's encouraging and pressing me to walk away from that so that I can pursue a godly and Christ-centered relationship or maybe just be alone in Him for a while. Am I willing to do that? Is the comfort of a potential spouse more valuable than the comfort of our Savior? Maybe it's our friendships that we are in relationship with toxic people people that encourage ungodliness rather than godliness, people that bring out anger rather than love, people that bring out fear and resentment and grudges and want to gossip and all this stuff, and I have ceased having the ability to be a light to them because now I'm in the position to where every time they start in on their foolishness, I jump right in with them because that's the way that our relationship is now formulated. Here's the secret of relationships. In every relationship, one person is influencing and one person is being influenced. So we're either going to be the person that is influencing somebody else for God or they're going to be influencing us either for God if they're a godly friend or for the world or the flesh or the devil if they're an ungodly friend. And sometimes just because they say they're a godly friend does not necessarily make them so. What if it's 
what if it is health? What if it is wellness? Now, I'm all for God being our healer. I am. But what if a sickness is on you and that sickness has the ability to affect a larger group of people because of it? Does that make sense? This is a very touchy doctrine. People argue about this all the time. But the truth of the matter is, is there is nothing that happens but God's hand doesn't allow it so. He has the ability to stop anything. And it's not saying he signs a check and says, here you go, signed, sealed, and delivered. I caused this sickness to come. But he sure as mess didn't stop it when he has the power to. So if that sickness is on you, yes, there is healing available. But have you ever stopped to consider the fact that maybe, just maybe, that sickness can work out a godliness in you? a dependence in you upon God or maybe that sickness can even work out in you a godliness in somebody else because they see your struggles and your reaction to the struggles is God-centered and Christ glorifying and then that can bring about a change in them knowing that that sickness that you're possessing that sickness that you're struggling with is actually glorifying God now I will never not pray for somebody to be healed when they're pressing forward and they're suffering I will never not pray for somebody to be healed, but I think it's time that we look, do a self-reflection and say, while I'm in the midst of this crisis, while I'm in the midst of this sickness, while I'm in the midst of this circumstance, how can I best glorify God until I'm healed? How can I best glorify God while I'm in debt? How can I best glorify God while I'm out of work? How can I best glorify God while my marriage is on the rocks? How can I best glorify God in these situations? Not looking at the bad and letting the bad be the prime primary focus of our thoughts and our mind and our words and our emotions because so often we get in a circumstance and it say it's say it's debt so that's just a common one everybody has financial problems here and there or has had at one point in your time life say you are out of work laid off for a couple weeks and now your rent is coming up there are people and I know them that even though their rent is coming up and they ain't got a dime in the bank, we'll still be glorifying God like, well, it ain't due yet. So He's going to come through because it ain't due yet. But then there's people who, they just paid their rent. They don't have any bills due until the next month and they miss work because they stubbed their toe. And they're like, oh gosh, my finances are falling through. My bank account's about to get shut down. I'm going to lose everything that I own. God help me, God help me, God help me. And for the next three weeks until they get back to work and they get that bill paid, that's all you're going to hear from them. It's a race to see how bad life is. I can't get my bills paid. My toe hurts because I stubbed it. I chipped my tooth. My friends won't talk to me. I posted a picture on Facebook and they haven't liked it yet. It's been three, four hours. They've been on three times. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They've been on Facebook three times. I posted that six hours ago. They've been on three times since then. And they liked everybody else's post, but they didn't like mine. My friendships is on the rocks. I mean, I'm, I'm getting them silly here. I'm going to the point of absurdity because... I want you guys to realize that that's where this really is. When you take a thought to its extreme, that's where it really puts us. And I've been there having a friend and I'm like, I call them and they won't ever answer my call because they weren't really a friend. But anyway, in ministry, and this was before the Alliance, but you call them, they won't ever answer my phone call, but anybody else calls them, they pick it up. And I'm like, there's some something more to this. And so then you let that consume you. And every time that person gets brought up, it's the first thing out of your mouth about them. Yeah, they're a pretty good preacher. But do you know they won't ever return my phone calls? <laughs> I've been there. I've done that. That's come out of my mouth. I'm, 
I, sa I said confession time. This isn't supposed to be an eloquent message. I'm not trying. I'm trying to be real right now because that's what I said. We're taking a water break. We're getting off of the eloquence and off of our little journey for just a second. We're going to take a detour and we're going to say, let's get real for just a second. I don't know why, but this is what I felt like the Spirit told me to do. Let's get real for just a second. How many times do we really look at our lives, the things that we think are good? My clothes have to be this brand because it just happens to fit better. And it makes me look a certain way. And I'm all about fashion, dress, look good. Not dissing anybody that wants to look a certain way or make themselves look more presentable. All for that. But when it becomes, I have to have Gucci, that ain't good, that ain't Gucci, it ain't good. <laughs> I have to have Louis. I mean, if it's not a Calvin Klein suit, it ain't going on my body. I mean, my shoes better be Sperry's. They better be Ralph Lauren. I'm just saying, this is going to the point of absurdity, but have we really looked at the things that we deem as necessary or valuable in our life and really done a spiritually honest inventory of our lives and said, is this really where we need to be? Is this really godly? Am I really living my life in the way Christ wants? A man told me a story, and I won't say his name because he'll probably listen to this later, and if he does, hi. He told me a story, and we were just talking about small moments that impact people's lives forever. Small moments that impact people's lives forever. And I told him the story of my grandfather, who is a very, very hard man. He's a good man. Do anything for you, but he's a very hard man, very quiet man. Their house burned down, and they were staying with Dad for a little while. And while they were doing that, a little boy gave him $2, two $1 bills to go towards the house fund. And my grandfather didn't let the little boy see it, but it made him cry. It brought tears to his eyes because this little boy who had nothing gave him the only $2 that he had to go towards my grandfather's house fund, that he thought more about my grandfather's needs than his own wants. He wasn't worried about a toy. He wasn't worried about anything else or Pokemon cards or whatever was in style at that time. He was worried about my grandfather's needs. And I said, if my grandfather really and truthfully enters into the kingdom because there's a little bit he's he's hard and he don't really talk about a lot and he has but he has church background there's some stuff that really affected him and hurt him but if he does enter into the kingdom and he's in heaven he's going to be attributed to that little boy's account and that little boy may never remember that the rest of his life that he was when he was seven or eight or however old he was he gave two dollars to an old man who needed it he would he would never remember that probably but it changed my grandfather's life, and my grandfather will never forget it. The little boy who did it will never remember it, and my grandfather will never forget it. Same type scenario, but flipped. My friend who's a pastor, after a Bible study one night, a person was talking to him and said, oh, I meant to put this in the offering plate, but I'll just give it to you. And they pulled it out of their purse, and they handed it to him. And I'm sure that they thought they were handing him something else, but what they handed him was a $1 bill and it was wrapped around a $11.99 or $12 movie ticket. And he said, the person didn't realize what they had handed me. But to me, it registered that this person had spent $12 or $11 on a movie ticket and gave God the change. Like they had given the best to the movie theater and they had given the scraps to God. And 
I'm not preaching this as give me all your money. That's not what I'm talking. What I'm talking about is the sincerity and the thoughts and the intents of the heart and the actual passion for Jesus. Have you ever heard that saying, "Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also"? Yeah, that's actually that's scripture. Where you put, where you, I can tell you. And there's three C's: your calendar, your checkbook, and your contacts. I think. I don't remember what the other one is. But anyway, the three C's, the people that you associate yourself with, the thing that you do with your time, and the thing that you spend money on, that's what has your heart. What you do with your time, who you spend your time with, associating with, and what you do with your finances will show you where your heart is. And for a long time, I'm just going to be honest, mine was McDonald's. (laughs) At least on the checkbook arena. Especially school, working, you know, being on my own, hadn't yet married a wonderful cook. Mine was fast food. Maybe not just McDonald's, but McDonald's had a huge portion in it. What I'm saying is that person's change that they gave, my friend will never forget that because it showed him that person's heart in that moment. Now, that person could have been reaching for a $100 bill and just grabbed the wrong one. But so often, that's really what happens. We eat a filet mignon with Alfredo sauce, is that what you like on it, and noodles and stuff, and we, we spend 50 60 $80 on dinner on Saturday night, and then we give $5 to the church and to missions and everything. And I'm on the financial train because finances is something that affects everybody. I could talk about sickness, but it don't affect everybody. I could talk about drugs, but not everybody's had a dealing with that. Finances is a universal thing. That's why I'm talking about it. I'm not trying to get your money, and I want you to understand that. If God is in this, then God will pay for this. If God wills for this to be a movement in the Gulf, then He'll make it a movement in the Gulf and He'll provide the finances. I'm not after your money. If you're giving grudgingly because I've persuaded you into it, your money isn't blessed anyway and I don't want it. I want you to give from the overflow of your heart because then it'll have power. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. We, we give from the abundance and the overflow of our heart. Don't give grudgingly. A lot of pastors would probably crucify me for saying that. But it's the things that we consider good. How often do we chalk them up and say, God, I'd give this up for you. My job, God, I'd give it up. I actually did this last night, just in my mind as I was just kind of laying there because for some reason the past couple nights I couldn't sleep. I was just laying there. And I thought, God, I love you. I love being a pastor. If you asked me to, I'd quit right now. not saying I'm going to. Don't panic. But I'm just saying, even the things that we think are valuable, would be willing to give them up. I've worked my tail off to get to where I'm at. And I'm so thankful. I love being here. I love being y'all's pastor. But if God Almighty truly asked me to, I'd have to give it up. Because it's not about pastoring. It's not about the work. It's about the God who ordains the work. And we really have to come to, and that's my biggest. I prayed my whole life, ever since I got saved, eight years ago, which is so long. But every time, ever since I got saved and really truthfully came into the understanding of Christianity, I've cried, I've begged, I've prayed, I've had all night prayer sessions like, God, I just want to give you everything. I want to be full-time ministry. I want to press after you. I want my life to be consumed by your word and your work. 
And God's bringing me there and He's given me this opportunity. But if He asked me to, I'd have to quit and I'd have to go back to a secular work because if I couldn't, then I value the work of a pastor more than I value the God whom I pastor for. So it has to be that no matter what it is in our life, if God asks us to do a 180 and change it and go in another direction, even if it seems awful, we have to be willing to. Otherwise, we value that thing more than God and it's become an idol in our life. We can look at Abraham. Abraham did not have a child. And he wanted a child so bad because that was his heir, especially in that culture. Everything that Abraham had worked his whole life for, every bit of riches that he had, all the blessings, they would go to his son, but he didn't have one, so they was going to go to the son of one of his servants. But he wanted a son, and God promised him and said, I'll give you a son. And there's a lot of stuff along the way, a lot of, a lot of working and ins and outs, but eventually his wife just said, you know what, I'm old. I'm past the time of a woman. I've already went through the natural changes, menopause, all that. I've already went through that. I'm not going to have a kid. Why don't you go with our handmaiden, my handmaiden, and have a son through her so you have a son? And you know what Abraham did? He listened to her and he settled. He tried to force the manifestation of God's promise. And it ended up backfiring and it's produced the Ishmaelites and a whole lot of problems ever since. That descendants of that mistake or that disobedience on his part are still plaguing the world today. But God still came through and he blessed him with a son. Abraham had Isaac. Abraham loved Isaac. This was his pride and joy. He loved it. You know what God did? He appeared to Abraham and He said, I want you to take your son, your only begotten son, and I want you to go to Mount Moriah. I want you to go up there and I want you to offer your son as a burnt sacrifice to me. And so Abraham, I am sure that night he had the worst night of travailing prayer he's ever had in his whole life. I'm sure he cried for God to change his mind. I'm sure that he wept. I'm sure that that next morning he was exhausted and his body ached from how much anguish and torment he was in. But he still got up and he went to the mountain and took Isaac. And Isaac's like, we've got the wood, we've got the stuff to start the fire, we've got everything we need, where's, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. God will make provision and he'll give us a sacrifice. And of course, God, Abraham goes to offer Isaac and God, the angel stops his hand. And the lamb, we can follow that through, was actually an indication pointing to Jesus because God in that instance gave him a ram, not a lamb. God will provide himself a lamb as saying God will be the lamb. He'll be the sacrifice. But the point of that story that I'm wanting to look at now is even though he had everything that he had sought from God to have, even though he had everything, he had reached it. He had what he wanted. God was like, could you give it up? And so that's, could we really give it up? Could I give up being a pastor? I say that I could. God asked me to. I'd probably be crying. I'd probably be travailing. I'd probably have some rough nights in prayer. But if push came to shove, I'd do it. Because that's what it's about. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. It's not about the work, although it's important. It's not about the manifestations, although they're awesome. It's about the man, Christ Jesus, and the love of God and the relationship that we have to Him. Could we really give it up? I mean, think, do an inventory. You know, as the challenge for this week, do an inventory in your heart and in your mind. Is there anything in my life that I value so much that I couldn't give it up for Jesus? 
Is there anything? Is it my job, my finances? Is it my health? Am I willing to die to give myself as a martyr for the faith? Because Paul says to me, to die is gain. And what's the whole purpose of this? What everything's about is right there in verse 10 that I may know him. That I may know him. It goes on to say that I may win Christ, but that I may know him. That I may know Jesus. Really know Jesus. Because a lot of people we know about Jesus. We can tell you some stories, some things that he said, some teachings that he did. We could even tell you the technical way to be saved. We know of Jesus. We can give you historical accounts. We can even preach some apologetics and defend our faith and prove it to you. You know, historically, scientifically, in the Bible, we can show you some prophecy, some cool things. A lot of theologians out there that don't know Jesus because they don't have a relationship with Him. And you know why? It's probably because there's something that they're holding on to that that won't let them press forward. It says it this way. Seeing that we have a great cloud of witnesses around us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. Not the weight of sin, but the weight and. The weight, whatever burden, baggage, thing that we're having to go along with. Yeah, I've got Jesus and I've got. No. Not Je- I've got Jesus and I'm a pastor. No. Not I've got Jesus and I'm a worship leader. No. No, I've got Jesus and I am a boss at my job. I've got Jesus and... No. I've got Jesus only. You can have this whole world, everything in it, all its good, all its riches, all its beauty, everything. Just give me Jesus. You can have everything else. I don't want it. Not if it's going to become between me and Jesus. Now, you can be rich and be perfectly godly. It's rare and it's hard, but you can do that. As long as you're willing to give it all up at any moment for the sake of Christ. How do you do this? That's the question. If that's, if that's the goal, to get to a place to where there's nothing that comes between us and Jesus, and we would be willing to give up everything, even our life, if possible, or if necessary, for the sake of Christ, how? Because that's asking a lot. I would empty my bank account and give all of my money to the poor. I'd sell everything that I have and donate it. I'd give my life as a martyr because I love Jesus. If that's the case and that's the goal, how do you get there? Because that's a pretty big question, isn't it? If we really want to get to a place to where it's Jesus and Jesus only and everything else is considered dung, or if you want it in real layman's terms, you got Jesus and then everything else is poop in comparison. Because that's really what it's saying. That's what the Greek language is indicating. You've got Jesus and everything else is poop or feces or dung or whatever your preferred word for it is. Jesus, P-O-C. Jesus, everything else. Nothing compares to Jesus. Jesus, everything else is worthless in comparison. How do you get there? And if you were here for Wednesday Night Bible Study, this scripture is going to sound familiar. Acts 2.22, if you just want to listen. You can write it down. You can turn there. But if you just want to listen. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here's, here's, the, here's the kicker. Here's the verse. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I will not be shaken. I saw the Lord always before my face. That's the King James translation. I saw the Lord always before my face. Even at my right hand that I would not be moved. If everything that you do, you do in the retrospect of Jesus Christ, God of heaven, standing in front of you or at your right hand, it will change how you do what you do. Somebody texts you a slanderous text and you go to response. You go to respond. I saw the Lord always before my face. That text is going to look a whole lot different than it would if you ignored God completely. Somebody comes up to you and they're yelling at you and they're slandering you because you've done something wrong at the job. You've done something wrong. Or maybe you haven't done anything wrong and they've just perceived it that way and it's offended them. And they're verbally attacking you. And you go to respond and shout back, get, see who can yell louder. But you get a check. I saw the Lord always before my face. Even at my right hand. That I would not be moved, that I would not be shaken. That right there is not going to shake or move me or change or dictate my response. Too often we let the world, the flesh, and the devil dictate our peace, dictate our standing, dictate our sanctification level, dictate how holy we are by how they treat us. The world treats us bad, so we treat them bad back. They yell at us, we yell at them. They slander us, we slander them. They talk about how awful things are, we jump right in and tell them how awful things are going to get. They talk about how sick they are, we talk about how sick we are. We let the world dictate our peace. And every time a circumstance comes up, we just become as ungodly as the rest of them. That's because 90% of the time, we do not live life looking through the lens of God. I saw the Lord always before my face that I should not be moved. Always. And that needs to be the encouragement that we have to ourselves every single day. That old bracelet that they made such a cliche should still ring true. What would Jesus do? What would He say? How would He act? How would He respond? How would He move? How would He lead this church? What direction would He step in? How would He impact with people, interact with people in the community? How would He treat people that He has to talk to in business? There is not a single circumstance you get into that there's not some similitude of an example for in Scripture provided by Jesus Christ or told to you directly how to respond. They hate you, respond good, bless them. They slander you, pray for them. They do evil to you, do good to them. How? I saw the Lord always before my face. When they persecute, when they attack, when your bills are late, I saw the Lord always before my face. One of the revelations of God is He is our provider. Yeah, my rent's due tomorrow my bank account's empty. The Lord is before my face. He's between me and tomorrow. He's going to provide. As long as I'm being obedient and I am doing the best of my ability, it's going to happen. It may be a day or two late. So what? He'll bring you the money for the late charge. When friends walk out on our lives... That's a tough one. That's a tough one. People you love, you sow into, you care about, they walk away from you. Whatever the reason, good, bad, justified, wrong, unjustified, doesn't matter. When they walk away, 
I saw the Lord always before my face. He's a friend. He's my friend. And He won't leave me. He won't forsake me. When hope seems gone, when my cabinets and my refrigerator is empty and my kids are hungry, I saw the Lord always before my face. Faith and I experienced that when personal testimony. Cabinets were empty. Refrigerator was empty. Working 50 and 60 hours a week. Struggling. You know what? Knock on my door. Bags of groceries in their hands. $200 cash handed to me. Knew nothing about it. And that's not the only time that's happened. Happened again a couple months later. Somebody showed up at my work with an envelope. $500 cash in it. I saw the Lord always before my face. He either is our God that will meet our needs, that will satisfy, that will be sufficient, that will be all in all everything that we need, or He's not our God at all. He's either the God of everything or He's the God of nothing in your life. And you have the ability to choose. Because if we just take... God as a fair weather God then what we're really worshiping and acknowledging is an aspect of ourselves and we're hoping in air we take them in the good and the bad we trust them in the good and the bad and even though our life comes to its the point of its conclusion and we're at death's door he's either God or he's not and we hope in him or we don't just give me Jesus You can have this world. Just give me Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this hasn't been eloquent. It wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to be a time to just be real. God, this is something that I need help with. Not pretending to stand up here and say that I always have it all together because I don't and you know that. And if I said that I did, I'd be lying. But God, here's my honest, honest hope in the depths of sincerity with the entirety of my heart, with everything that I have. God, I hope for myself, for my wife, for my family, for this congregation, and even for it to bleed out into the community that we could truly become a people who are a people of faith. It says the righteous shall live by faith. Lord, I want to live by faith, and I want them to as well. That the circumstances don't get to dictate our hope, They don't get to dictate whether or not we're joyful. They don't get to dictate whether or not we have good relations towards people, whether we're happy or sad or mad. So often the world dictates how we act. God, enough of that. Let our faith dictate how we act. Lord, if anyone is here and they're struggling with a sickness that's overcoming them, God, I pray two things. First, I pray that they're immediately healed and delivered from that. But second, I pray that while they're enduring the effects and the afflictions of that sickness, that they would find a way to glorify You in it. If it's a financial issue, I pray for provision to come speedily, and I pray for their faith to be built and stretched and grown in that time of lack. That they may rejoice God all the better when they have more than enough. Lord, whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance, whatever the struggles, whatever the hurts, the pains, the wounds, whatever it is, Lord, let us just sing that song. Just give me Jesus. They can have everything else. Just give me Jesus. Let that be the heart cry of this church. Just give us Jesus.
Just give us Jesus. Give us Jesus.